Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. With folks like me on the job from nine to five. Hi everyone, you're listening to Living the Dream, the pod- podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group, and you're here with Dave and Carmen. And Carmen, um, you're going to tell us today about some workplace organising training skills 101, is that correct? Yeah. I really wanted to do this interview uh, because you were up in Brisbane recently and it was a two-day course, is that correct? Yes. Which is pretty impressive, I'm pretty interested in it. So to start with, um, could you tell us what is this training and what it's all about? Okay, so basically um, the background of the training is that it was um, developed for um, the FRU in Berlin, which is an anarcho-syndicalist based union. Basically, the training does come from a kind of anarcho-syndicalist background, but it's also been developed through a couple of other unions uh, with that same politics in the, uh, specifically the Wobblies in uh, North America, which is the International Workers of the World and um, also sold fed in England. So basically the training is uh, teaching people who have had uh, 
no union background at all and uh, no workplace organising background, just the basic essentials of how to uh, sort of locate issues, start a campaign and then hopefully make wins uh, in your workplace without the involvement of a mainstream capitalist union. Okay, well, there's lots of super interesting things just from there. So if it's possible, could you tell us what the training actually looks like? It's a two-day course. It's a serious amount of time. What kind of things does the training consist of? So I guess... Paint us a picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess really the type of training uh, that we deliver is not actually fundamentally that different from the -the on-the-ground training that you get in um, a capitalist union. That's because generally a lot of the organising principles are more or less the same. It's just that um, I guess what we're organising towards is is vastly different. So what that looks like basically is that... um, you know, we, we explain some basics of anarcho-syndicalism, but also we don't get too bogged down in the politic. And that's very important because uh, I think that one of the reasons why this training has resonance with people is because uh, there's been a lot of critique and um, kind of ideological thinking around, uh, you know, where we are in this stage of neoliberalism or late capitalism and what is to be done. But uh, what seems to be uh, missing is is practical step-by-step skills to kind of, uh, so people feel like they're actually moving towards these ideological goals that uh, many people have already developed uh, quite sophistic- to quite a sophisticated level in their own heads. So basically what this means is uh, we get people to uh, come to the training uh, with a workplace issue. Now that, you know, it, it can be uh, we want our employee to start paying for coffee in the workplace because at the moment we have to pay for our own coffee or we want the aircon fixed, um, right up to, you know, full communism, like, that's that's fine. We can work with whoever at whatever level. So we we make sure that people come with an issue and, and, and basically a goal that they can start working towards. Then, basically, we take them through uh, the mainstream... I don't know, I mean, firstly... I guess, the, firstly, the step of uh, workplace mapping. So what that means is uh, creating physical maps, social so maps. Actually drawing with a pen Absolutely. and pencil. Absolutely, yeah. So drawing from a bird's eye um, view, the, the geographical mapping of your workplace, who sits where, who's arranged where, what teams are arranged where, where the boss sits, where the, smoky, where the smokers are, where the kitchen is. All this is really important um, to take on board with organising. We also do other types of maps too, so social maps, um, who's friends with who, maybe who has different hobbies, who talks to who after work, and then obviously you've also got a structural map too, which is basically like a, what teams are where, you know, who um, reports to who, where's the two I, the second in command, or uh, you know how how, how workers are organised essentially within that workplace structure. So the physical organisation of the workplace. Yep then the kind of already existing dynamics that people have, and then the relationships of power and command that all get mapped out, coming from this perspective of one issue. Yes. Well, I mean, not coming from the issue, but just so we can... um, It'll have the issue in mind ultimately, but first we just want to get an idea of the type of workplaces that uh, we're dealing with. And 
the reason why this, uh, the other thing that I'd like to clarify too is that when we do this mapping, a lot of people will sort of throw up their hands and say, well, look, I mean, for my, you know, this would work for someone maybe in an open plan office who is a, um, who works in an actual physical work site, but there is lots of ways that um, labour is uh, structured now, and I'm sure everyone knows this, that means that um, people uh, might not actually be going into um, a physical workplace every day. And um, I just want to stress also that there are ways that maps can work too in that sense, uh, which, which do accommodate that. For me personally, um, I, I am a freelance worker, so the maps that uh, I use, because I talk to my co-workers through Skype, basically, um, can still exist there through those social connections, through the way that work's structured. And also, I mean, even though, uh, say, online organising, uh, workplace organising does have some uh, d downfall, it also has a lot of opportunity too. And, um, uh, we, we just make sure that workers know that irrespective of how your workplace looks, we can map and structure it out, um, yeah, to, to basically start a campaign around the issue that they've identified. So then after that, it's just simply, you know, uh, identifying who's a social leader in, in the workplace. Who do people listen to? A lot of times uh, it's basically going to be the actual worker themselves because um, most workplaces don't actually... Uh, haven't actually been through workers' struggle and don't have a history of it. So just identifying people that you want on site in order to um, in order to start having those conversations. And then, of course, after that, the next step is how to have those conversations. Um, so we basically um, teach the classic anger-hope action uh, conversation arc, which is pretty um, staple unionism. Basically, it's the idea of how to have a conversation with co-workers where you have a goal that you want to achieve at the end uh, and how to do it in a way which, um, you know, makes them feel empowered, makes them feel that something can be done about the issue. And it's also good for your own organising too to talk to other workers and to make sure that the, the issues that you think are important in the workplaces are the ones that actually have, are deeply and widely felt by your co-workers. Um, so basically, I guess I guess we can talk quickly about what that conversation arc is. Yeah, please do. I think this is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, anger, hope, action. I mean, some some mainstream unions have have nine steps of like how to have a con structured conversation. It's absolutely hectic. But I mean, for for us as workers on the ground, um, you know, it, it doesn't need to be that complex. I mean, so firstly, you've got anger. Why would you want to make um, your your co-workers angry so I mean we can take a very um, a basic example say of like trying to get uh, coffee into the office um, you know you should be asked you can go and approach you know if you've done your mapping you know where the kitchen is if the kitchen isn't near the boss if it isn't near a manager um, if there's times when you know that certain people enter the kitchen you can talk to them then uh, that's a great place and it's a great um, springboard in order to have that conversation and so basically what we don't want to do in that, in that instance is uh, kind of set forward, like doesn't it make you uh, pissed off that uh, 
you know, we've got to pay for coffee every day. Yeah, is there a danger that this can seem really phony? Absolutely. Again, and it can seem, and, and it is, and it is a bit like, it can seem phony because a structured conversation has, a, has an intended outcome. And so for that reason, it's always going to be a bit clunky. And unfortunately, there's not much we can do about that. It, it just takes practice and it becomes um, a bit more natural, like, you know, as you practice. But obviously, because there is an intended outcome, it's, um, it's always going to be a bit uh, difficult. But, but it's important because we need, to, we need to sort of get workers to start thinking again uh, about like uh, not just kind of like defending um, management in any um, position or decision that they take but also what they believe that they are entitled to um, within their workplaces and and getting the anger is um is important because basically we want people to go from a disempowered state to a position where they feel like they can actually act and do something now of course like this is a fine art too because uh, obviously um uh, if you pick the wrong issue to organise around, then the anger won't be there and the campaign's going to fall down before it even starts because it's not an issue that has wide resonance. Equally, Do you have to pick something that's kind of winnable as well? Like, is yes. there a moment of strategy yes. before, even before you've done the mapping, you've all almost got to have had some, some idea about something that's going to resonate with people enough, but also you can win? Yeah, and that's why these conversations are so important because they help you to engage strategically what's actually the best, um, what is the best issue to start organising around. Of course, if your workplace has had no history of workers' struggle, then full communism is going to be a pretty difficult start. I mean, you could give it a red-hot go, like, uh, you know, and, and I'd support that. But, I mean, honestly, if, if we are about uh, building power and building workers' power, then, um, then yeah, we prioritise... Uh, I guess issues according to um, where the consciousness and where the power of, of the workers are in that particular organisation. So within the conversation arc, I guess, after you get the anger, um, you have to provide the hope. And that hope is, well, how, basically how would we get, how would we get the coffee situation seen to? Um, we, we sort of present a situation like, you know, uh, Dave, how would it feel if you didn't have to, you know, walk a kilometre to the coffee store every day, and, you know, just... I'd be happy uh, about that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and also... Uh, but fatter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, the, then the other issue, too, is that, um, you know, with hope, uh, we're not trying to do something uh, which uh, is unrealistic or which is uh, outside the capacity of the workplace. So the hope has to be real, has to be tangible. It has to be something that, like, is actually winnable and so therefore like with hope um when you when you give present a situation like there uh, well when you when you sort of float the idea that these issues can be seen to it's important to inoculate workers as well yeah. so um you know that there is actually in order to get any demands met there's some risk involved and so uh it's important to inoculate uh inoculate workers that that's going to happen too are you familiar with that term Inoculate, yeah, in medical terms, <laughs> but maybe do you want to talk about what you mean by it? Or sure. So um, basically, what we don't want to do when we're talking about an issue in a workplace is uh, provide hope to workers that their issues can be seen to, and give them unrealistic expectation of what's going to happen. Basically, because that doesn't build collective power, and that's what ultimately we want. So basically, what we're saying is, uh, you know. Maybe a good example would be, so Dave, you know, if we want to get the coffee situation seen to, what do you think would happen if, uh, 
if you you just went and uh, went to management now and asked shot, that. I'd be shot down. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what do There'd you... There'd be no room in the budget. <laughs> Absolutely, and there never is. So what do you think would happen if we got maybe five or six of us to go and ask management together? They would have to address that. Absolutely. Maybe there might be room in the budget all Indeed. of a sudden. Yeah. So, it become a team morale issue. Yeah, absolutely. And so basically, we're not trying to deny that there is risk involved in these actions, but we're saying that with collective power, we mitigate those risks. And so therefore, we've got a greater chance of success. So basically, that goes on to the third, um, the third step of the arc, which is, which is action, you know. So every, uh, every issue ha ha is won through a campaign, no matter how large or small. Um, not all campaigns are public, some are very internal. In the example that we just gave, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to go for those low-hanging fruit because it means that workers feel more confident to address bigger issues and, um, you know, when the action is, is quite immediate, quite easy. And uh, in my, in my organising experience, there is a lot of workplace issues that just by formalising it through more workers getting uh, on board with the, with the issue or by getting a third party involved, then um, they're able to get their needs met. So basically, um, within a larger campaign, the actions that we want to, um, th that we're generally working towards is getting people, getting workers to a meeting uh, outside of work hours where people can start, uh, you know, really letting off steam about um, about the situation at hand or other issues that um, that they might have. So is that key, that next step that people need, attempt to get people together to form some kind of formal or informal organisation or at least just get together outside the workplace? Yeah, absolutely, because um, basically that's... That's where you know where people are at, you know, because, I mean, a lot of, especially with, with the conversation arc too, the other, aside from inoculation, the other thing that's sort of thrown into the mix is that obviously you're going to have to do uh, what we call a lot of objection handling. So that when we talk about going to a meeting, in union terms, this is called putting the ask on someone. And that's when uh, basically you're, you understand their issues, they want to do something about it, and now you're saying this is this is the thing that, that we're going to do. And so, a meeting is a good first step for several reasons. It makes sure that your your issue is correct. Um, it gives you a good idea of um, who is more willing to address the issue than others. Who do you need to to sort of work on a bit harder to get them on board? Who's already kind of um, rusted onto to to the message? You know, and uh, and in general, it, it's a good first step to start get, for workers to start self-identifying each other as such, um, sort of against management. And obviously, um, from an anti-capitalist perspective, uh, irrespective of, of what your politic is, um, uh, if, if you believe in class war, then that's ultimately what we're sort of working towards. So, um, basically. So we do a lot of objection handling, you know, how, how to um, deal with people's objections around like, oh, well, you know, um, uh, I don't have time or, uh, you know, I've got other things on or I can't get there. Um, generally, um, a lot of the time, people's objections have uh, deeper reasons and it's actually important that you get to the bottom of those reasons. Um, so we, we just sort of... Uh, 
I guess we explain how to sort of navigate around that. But also, you know, to, to learn when you've really exhausted your time and effort with someone and where to drop it. Um, there are people who um, just, you know, simply don't agree with, um, you know, with, with organising for whatever reason, and that's fine. Um, there's a point where you just have to drop it, and, uh, and but always keep the door open mm. for them to be able to return at another point. So, uh, I guess after that, um, you know, we teach people how to assess from these initial meetings, assess the capacity of the workplace, kind of, uh, we teach people how to um, start dele delegating tasks in ways that, you know, mean that you're, it's not being led by you as an individual anymore, and to sort of disperse the campaign uh, within the group that's organising. Um, so, and then we also sort of deal with um, uh, uh, once people feel like they're at a stage where action is possible, the types of action that can be taken. And basically what we're talking about is um, a direct action context. So um, there's lots of small scale direct actions that um, you can do in your workplace. We also have to inoculate ourselves and inoculate each other that um, uh, basically all types of workplace organisation is, uh, is illegal in Australia, right? So um, even uh, we don't even have the right to strike. Uh, mm. If you want to strike, you've got to go to the tri tribunal, you know, you have to go to fair work, and there's a six-month waiting period. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's a huge bureaucratic thing, which which is interesting because and this is the reason that often official unions say to members about why they can't do anything. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, so. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, and it, it it's also led to the impotency of most capitalist unions being um, encumbered by the framework of the law. Now, as an um, as anti-capitalist and from a base union structure. You, you, you aren't encumbered by mainstream union officials and that bureaucracy, but it's important to understand in broad terms what laws are there and what function they do serve in as much as it's strategic for your campaign. It shouldn't dictate the campaign and dictate the possibilities of the campaign, but we need to kind of know uh, what those laws are that surround us, um, yeah, just so we can make the best plan. And I think uh, sometimes that's uh, sometimes I found uh, delivering these workshops. That's the thing that people struggle with the most, and, and it is and it is a difficult situation. But unfortunately, it's one that if we are to do anything, that we have to work within. And the more struggle that you're involved in, the more that you see um, situations where you know uh, the, the employers just straight out threaten to sue people, fire people, etc. Uh, with collective action, I've, I've actually seen those type of situations play out in a myriad of different ways and people shouldn't take that initial threat as gospel because uh, anything can happen in, um, in the scheme of a campaign and, and, and it has. So basically um, we, we kind of, yeah, we, we make people kind of aware of the types of small-scale direct actions that um, could work for their campaign once they feel like they've got the collective power to do so. And just to give a couple of examples, I guess, of like what those might be. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there's small small actions like, uh, you know, uh, go slows, where um, if, you, if the issue in your workplace is that everyone's being pushed too hard, doing work that's outside their job description for longer hours that they're being paid for or they're not being compensated um, overtime for, then ensuring that everyone works 
exactly to their job description, exactly to the amount of time and exactly to the capacity that they're actually paid for will cause havoc with, with most workplaces. Um, premised on overtime, right? Absolutely. That, I think that the stats from the Australian Institute are old there, but they were, the last one was something like $7 billion a year of unpaid overtime yeah. that happens within the Australian economy. And I think that's like eight or ten-year-old stats. So yeah. a lot yeah. of businesses are premised on that. Absolutely. And there's a lot of different direct actions that are... That, that uh, kind of respond to that as well because, I mean, you can... There's the tactic of just saying no. So the collective refusal to, to undertake new tasks and, and tasks outside your job description. Uh, having collective breaks, if um, the issue in your workplace is that you're not getting um, the breaks that you deserve, that's uh, really effectively found in the hospitality, um, food prep uh, sectors. Or well, everyone just takes their, their lunch break. And that would shut down production, right? Yeah, so. absolutely, yeah. So um, uh, basically, uh, also like I think things like a joint letter to the boss um, with everyone. Uh, I've, I've been involved with um, with actions like that, where it's a jo joint uh, a letter that's been si signed by a lot of people, um, and then you know uh, petitions too can work um, uh, when they're internal. Uh, you can get people involved outside the workplace too, so um, uh, getting friends to provide anonymous feedback or um, messing with the company's hashtags, if it is a company that um, relies on its social image a lot, can help. Uh, just because, I mean, most, most of the time in a, in a medium to large scale campaign, uh, employers won't do anything until it does go public. And, We've seen that definitely. Uh, a great example of that was uh, Kalani Pryor and the Burger Urge uh, struggle for for them to get their uh, enterprise bargain renewed after a non-renewal period of over a decade. So what was this? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it's uh, it was actually by um, Socials Alternative member Kalani Pryor who um, organised. I think it was here in Brisbane, like uh, a campaign against Burger Urge. Of, um, the mm -hmm. they, they make uh, fast food and. Um, they hadn't renewed their EBA in over a, a decade. Wow. Which they said they were getting to and that um, the workers' struggle didn't force them into that position. They were about to do it anyway. But um, basically it was a campaign that um, it had to go public in order to, um, in order to stake uh, its mm. claim. And so basically um, that's what... So we, we, we teach, uh, you know, suggest so some small-scale um, direct actions um, that people can participate in. Uh, we, we teach how you might decide on a tactic um, and, uh, you know, which tactics would best suit the, the issue that you're um, addressing. And then basically, um, uh, and then basically, yeah, dealing with, like, if a campaign has to escalate from there, how do you do it? So basically that's, um, if you do need to go public, when is the best time to do it? How would you do it? Who would you put, who would you sort of contact, and um, and and how would you ensure that your campaign uh, uh, maintained its momentum after going public? Because I guess one of the biggest issues we have, and it comes back to industrial law again in Australia, is that um, is that basically uh, a lot of the time the struggle on the ground will coincide with the struggle in court. And, um, and even though that, again, we, we consider the law um, strategic rather than um, all-pervasive in how we organise, uh, 
if we leave, if, if there is a legal arm to the struggle, we, we have to make sure that the campaign on the ground maintains momentum because basically if a, if a struggle is fought entirely in court, um, it becomes... It, 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 becomes in the realm of experts and basically uh, what we kind of resist in people's struggle is um, the reliance on expertism because uh, we, we, we're against anything that doesn't, uh, that doesn't build collective power basically. So um, it's important that any type of um, struggle that is, is happening in public, in the courts, there's still that um, presence on the ground, whether that's picket, picketing, whether that's uh, flyering, leafleting, whether that's um, escalation of direct action within the workforce, whether that's getting um, other groups involved on the outside, but that has to keep, that, that has to sustain itself because otherwise um, it ultimately falls down. That, that's really, really super interesting. Um, how often do you get to run out to, to provide this kind of training? And do you find that you have a similar, for lack of a better term, demographic that attends? Or do you get quite a wide composition of people who attend this training? Okay, so um, that's a really good question and it's really important to address it. Um, I have done my best to uh, ensure that the people that come to the training uh, feel that they don't have to uh, have had any union experience or even activist experience in general. Um, you know, that they don't, that there is still, I think, um, quite a pervasive idea of like uh, unions being like, this white working class of dudes hitting bricks with more bricks, and it's like that, that's, that doesn't have to be the case. Um, so I, I try to make um, a point uh, when I do advertise, like uh, you know, for people to come to the to the organising, that uh, you, you don't have to be um, you don't have to identify in that way. Um, basically, that's meant that um, we've had a good. Um, there's been a lot of women who have attended, which is good. Um, and but I guess uh, it's it's still mm, I'd still like to say that uh, the, the training kind of um, falls falls short in the way that a lot a lot of organising here does with um I guess connecting connecting with other communities. But basically, I think also that um, unionism is something that hasn't really. I mean, I don't think that, that there's much of a groundswell of it as far as base unions go in Australia anyway. And uh, maybe it might be important at this point too to sort of like uh, s separate what I'm talking about when I talk about a base union. Yeah, so I think capitalist. the term base union is not a familiar term yeah. in Australia. Yeah. So can you explain that to me, please? Yeah. Um, so basically the difference is that uh, in a capitalist union, if you're... If you're a member of a capitalist union, then basically, um, if you come to that union with a grievance in your workplace, uh, the union makes uh, a decision about whether they're going to take up that struggle. That decision's based on the density in your workplace, how many other people are already members of that mainstream union, how many members they would set to gain from uh, taking on your struggle, and how financial those members be. That means how much, how much dues they would pay on a monthly basis to the union. And um, again, like uh, it's encumbered by um, ever increasingly stifling uh, industrial law, like uh, of the country and of the states. And also um, whether it's in the union's best interests uh, image-wise to take on your struggles. So 
um, and how difficult it's going to be. So basically, um, that's led most unions to uh, totally drop uh, most most forms of of struggle and uh, leave the issues that their members uh, bring to them unaddressed. Or even presence, right? You yeah. know that I, th I get the impression from afar there are some industries where union membership is something mm. that is an active participation of people on the work on the work shop floor, for lack of a better term. Mm. But certainly in my personal history experience, mm. often the, the union has been nothing more than a corkboard or a phone number and has actually had an absence of organisational capacity on the ground. Absolutely. And I think, uh, and that's just the sad reality of, of, of not meeting the challenges that um, modern workplaces modern, modern workplaces are sort of founded on. And it's a, yeah, it's a boss's game. And I guess, but I mean, the, the idea with the base union is that what you're doing is that you're taking out, in a capitalist union structure, if, if, if actually the union does feel that it's financially viable for them in a capitalist sense to take on your struggle, if they actually do that, then you have a situation of um, the employee speaking through and being represented by the union, speaking to and negotiating with the employer. And so basically, um, a base union structure says that the workers are the union, so it takes out that middle person of the union representative, which means that um, the employ like your employer has to speak and address you directly. So it means that you as a worker have complete control over your, over your struggle, you decide the issues and you decide the actions. It's not mitigated by a third party that has financial interest in you taking um, a, a particular route, a particular standpoint and, um, and making particular demands to your employer. And basically, um, the reason why we do, why we, we speak directly to employers as workers, taking out that middleman, is because um, from an anarcho-syndicalist perspective, we believe that mainstream unions um, actually are, um, act as uh, uh, exhaust valves for working class anger, rather than um, some type of uh, consolidating force um, to to make that anger more structured, more potent, or more dangerous. I'd just like to ask a question on that. So, when you do the training, do you have a model of what, you know, is part of the hope that struggles will lead to a more permanent form of organisation in the workplace? And do you have a kind of model in mind, or is whatever is created is good enough? Because, and I guess, like, one of the reasons I'm asking this is because I'm, I'm not an anarchist, but my kind of experience of anarchist groups in Australia is often that they're kind of grand plans to build already formalised organisations, but often are just as far away from what's happening in people's lives as any other left group is. And so what you're talking about seems refreshingly different from that, you know. Um, so could you talk about if you have any... If you train with the idea of a particular kind of organisation or even a particular organisation arising out of this? Yeah, so I think that um, that's a really good question. One of the reasons why I think that anarcho-syndicalism in Australia um, has fallen so short in the way that you've identified and I completely agree with um, is not so much um, a failure of the politic uh, in itself, although I'm not hung up with working with people from explicitly that politic, um, mm. but it's actually about strategy. And um, the strategy 
it, it, it doesn't it doesn't speak to workers on the ground now. Spanish Civil War historical recreation societies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Narodniks in the in the Russian Revolution. I mean, it's and you know and and that stuff's there and and um, you know if. Uh, as far as my experience in based unions, say in, um, in in Berlin, where I was part of the um, Free Workers Union, the FO that um, I was speaking about before, where we developed this training, um, if you wanted to have those conversations with um, other comrades, you could, but um, it wasn't essential. And it's basically uh, the organisational model that this is premised on is that you don't actually have to be um, even an anti-capitalist, really, uh, to um, to actually start. Yeah. So there is going to be um, a, a point in the struggle where uh, people might have to reassess their ideas. So um, that might be when you come up against the law, that might be when uh, you might settle on a compromise with management that they therefore don't honour. Why would they not do that? You know, um, that might be uh, seeing how your struggle, when you go public, how that struggle is represented in the press being unfair. So there are things that happen in struggle you know, people's ideas change in struggle. And um, so the idea is not that we, we don't lead with the ideology. And I think mm. that's been the problem with um, a lot of anti-capitalist left organisations is that they expect you to actually um, already subscribe to X, Y and Z in order to even start. And that's led to a lot of people being excluded, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's led to a lot of uh, hierarchy not just within organisational structures, because then there are these leaders who um, who know more about this ideology than others, and therefore are considered uh, better comrades. But also that that's also a very um, racialized, gendered, um, you know, subjectivity, I guess, of, of who owns power. And um, when we when we actually look at the makeup of the working class, it's majority women, it's majority um, non-white people, it's uh, you know, it, it, like, and, and unfortunately, these aren't the people that are being represented. And I think that, uh, you know, what this training uh, is attempting to start is, um, you know, is how to organise without getting bogged down um, in the ideology and let those questions resolve themselves um, later on. Now, it's absolutely structured around an anarcho-syndicalist uh, model and we don't make any... Um, you know, we don't try to hide that fact, but we don't expect people to to be versed in it in order in order to access it, and they they don't have to be. Yeah, because if you, if you it'd be impossible to start from formal anti-capitalist ideology in most workplaces, right? Yeah. Over, you know, it, that's just not a point where you're relating to yeah. people, right? It's exactly, and that's what we found also when we asked people to come and bring an issue to us is that basically um, that. Uh, a lot of people come and, and, and when you're like, what do, would you like to change in your workplace? People will say things like, um, oh, I want less isolation or um, mm. I want more solidarity. And it's like, um, and that's great. And, um, and I think absolutely that's lacking in workplaces. But what we need to do, it's like, okay, all right. But what would that look like in your workplace? What tangible um, uh, proposition can you make that you can pitch to your other workers for them to kind of get an idea of um, what what building solidarity would look and feel like. So, uh, in the last, when I did roll out this training in Brizzy, like what that did look like was that um, uh, okay, so building more solidarity in uh, my workplace would mean a uh, once a month meeting uh, of workers on paid time, uh, on, yeah, on on workplace paid time 
without any uh, bosses or managers um, included. So that's what it would look like, like a, a staff-only meeting on paid time once a month. And so that's something that you can actually start working with, you know, that, that it gets you to um, build these more abstract um, ideas that people might have that they'd like to see. And, and I think that this is the kind of, this is the kind of um, uh, you know, practicality that people are really you know, are really kind of lacking, I think, honestly, in the left. And, I mean, I think, um, like, broadly speaking, like, Occupy was kind of a, a good example of, like, what happens when there, when, when there isn't these tangible steps to achieving uh, a clear outcome. But um, also that uh, the, the more that, I don't know, the, the, the more that the, the struggle becomes abstract and around abstract ideas and abstract feelings, um, the less that, that, that people... Um, have experience mm. with just um, um, organising step by step on the ground, and I guess that this is just this type of training is just trying to inject um, some of that practicality. I'm, I'm really fascinated by your use of the term power because it's something I'm hearing comrades talk about more and more. It's almost mm. like we've been compelled to have mm. to deal with a question that we really need to work out how to have power. But uh, at this point in time, I, I feel I'm I'm also compelled to ask the question. All right, this seems to be very much fa focused on wage labour specifically. Is this kind of approach appropriate for those other forms of work that take place outside of wage labour? Does that come up in the training? You know, so is this an approach that can be taken up by students or unemployed people or the people at home who do reproductive labour, majority are women, you know, and, and also have those kind of conversations come up in the training you've run out so far? Um, they've come up partially because a lot of the people who are involved in the training are also part of community struggles and we do, um, when we are trying to uh, talk about how a campaign should unfold, we have these classic kind of tools like um, SWOT analysis. So uh, SWOT analysis? Yeah, it's SWOT, so that's um, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats, trying to, um, you know, using your community um, struggles and your community campaigns uh, to, I mean, assessing them basically for what their strengths are um, and what their weaknesses are and basically what you want to do is you want to, um, you know, try to move uh, as, as many weaknesses into opportunities and make sure that, you know, um, that, that weaknesses don't become threats. So uh, basically it's just sort of a a good way of dissecting where your community struggles at as well as your workplace struggle and we do have that overlap and, and we have like thought about some uh, struggles particularly the the homeless uh, homeless persons union in um, Melbourne we we use that as an example in the Melbourne training in the Brisbane training uh, we use some of the stuff around um, you know right to the city and, and also worries of Aboriginal resistance so um, I guess they were used as examples, but does the training actually talk about a broader interpretation of work? Um, it doesn't, but uh, one of the challenges of um, anarcho-syndicalism and any type of anti-capitalist unionism renewing itself in Australia is starting to have these conversations again, because the nature of labour is changing dramatically, and if unionists can't see full automation as a union issue, if they can't see issues like AIDS as a union issue, if they can't see, you know, yeah, domestic <coughs> struggle as a workers' issue, um, uh, like uh, freelance work, uh, 
precarity. I mean, these things, these are all about labour, right? And, I mean, um, what we're for is uh, meaningful work being, um, you know, the cornerstone of any, uh, like, anti-capitalist uh, society. And so um, we shouldn't be shying away from from these issues as ex explicitly union issues. So although the training doesn't address it um, itself, it's, it's certainly open and can be transferred to it. Now, I can't imagine that there's anyone who's heard this who now doesn't want to do this training. <laughs> so, because uh, this is, sounds, it just, to my mind, it, it sounds super interesting and incredibly relevant and something, you know, that we really, really need is the rebuilding of this power and the terrain of our lives. If people are interested in this training, how can they access it? Well, I mean, like, here's the thing is that uh, I'm, I'm not a natural trainer uh, and I also don't, uh, I, I think that these, these are duties that have to be uh, rotated. So basically when I do um, deliver the training, I, um, I do the training with another person, not just because um, it means that people don't have to, you know, hear the sound of my voice like for, for two entire intense days straight, but also because we want to pass on this knowledge um, uh, to, to other people. So um, I always co-host the training. I co-hosted it with the IWW here in Brisbane. Um, and, uh, and I also encourage everyone at the training to get into contact with me if they believe that they're competent to deliver the training. Um, if, I mean, uh, like I can, I can roll it out in Brisbane um, again, but I, I roll it out with the, with the expressed intention um, to, uh, to, to get other people skilled up in it um, enough so that I can do other things. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Karen, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd really like to talk about? A lot of organising is very um, homogenous, regrettably, in terms of like the people who are accessing it, the people who are leading it, the people who are involved. And if we want to um, make these sort of type of structures uh, less that way, that can appear to a broader spectrum of the community, we actually have to get very um, explicit about who we are and what we stand for in a way that's like lucid, in a way that is um, easy to understand, and in a way that can break complex, uh, complex uh, issues or, or situations within capitalism down into um, understandable parts. Because it's not until we actually, you know, how can you agitate or how can you go to other community groups um, and, and sort of say, well, um, you know, we're, we're a coalition of people that, I don't know, like small C communists, like a, a, some people are, some people aren't. Like people don't know what you're talking about. And I guess, uh, you know, at the moment I live and I do activism in the Northern Territory and uh, in a Darwin Pacific conference, uh, <laughs> feels like that sometimes. I mean, in a Darwin Pacific context, um, you know, I have to actually be able to express my politic in a way, um, you know, that, that uh, is, is different to maybe, say, um, a white university educated, um, uh, you know, group of people. And I think that, um, you know, definitely our politics can be communicated to different groups in different ways and draw on their experiences. But um, in order to do that, it has to be... Um, it has to be actually able to be articulated because the more that we rest in ambiguity, um, you know, there's not much risk involved with that, so it's easier for us, but there's no gain either. Carmen, on that note, which is fantastic, I have to go back to work. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Do you want me to come with you? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for the, the time.
time you've given uh, today. I think that's been super fantastic and super relevant. I imagine people will feel the same way about it too. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. And remember, everyone, that those who make the paradise own the paradise. <laughs>